Hello, I'm Jonty Gloom, and today on BDO's Industry Angles, we're looking at the future of two new green energies, with the headlines dominated by little else and whether this is going to be another winter of discontent, what better time to look at the future for electricity and hydrogen as alternative energy sources and how they can work together. To do that, BDO has brought together two industry leaders, Joe Bamford, the owner of Wrightbus, which makes diesel, electric and hydrogen-powered buses, and the founder of a new investment fund to develop hydrogen as a fuel, and Stephen Mearsman, founding director of Zenobi Energy, a company specialising in battery storage and optimisation. And I started by asking Joe why he thinks hydrogen and electricity are the transport fuels of the future. Fundamentally, I don't think you can do it without hydrogen, but you need both. You need batteries and hydrogen. When you start getting into big and heavier stuff, all those issues around charge times and all that sort of stuff, distance travelled, etc., start becoming problematic. So, you know, we make a diesel bus, we make a battery bus, and we make a hydrogen bus. A diesel bus does 330 miles on a fill-up, takes three minutes to fill it up. The battery bus, depending on terrain and temperature, anywhere between 110 and 170 miles um, and uh, takes about three and a half hours, arguably four hours, depending on to charge up. Our hydrogen buses are doing 285 miles um, or, and take seven minutes to fill up. Uh, so, you know, ultimately it, it, it's not an either or, it's a both. Um, battery buses do short uh, shorter city centre routes, hydrogen do longer distance stuff, but actually get bigger than buses and you start doing trains and you start doing big and heavy stuff, you're still going to you're going to need to have hydrogen uh, in the mix and then you're ultimately going to need it to have it for doing things like decarbonising steel, uh, cement, etc. Okay, so Steve, how does battery and hydrogen work together then, do you think, if it's going to be the future? Well, I think the first place is, is at the start uh, where, where hydrogen's generated because ideally you'd... Um you'd like to generate the hydrogen from excess renewable energy. I mean, if you look at last weekend, while people were queuing up for petrol, National Grid was also paying to turn off wind farms in Scotland. I think it costs about £2 million just for Sunday. So that's a waste. If you could use that energy, store it in batteries, which might help for brief blips, but if you want to do it for longer periods, you're going to need some sort of chemical, i.e. hydrogen, uh, that can be used uh, elsewhere in the industry, be it, as, as, as Joe already touched on, steel, heating, or other parts uh, where it can be used. So I think that's where, where it starts, is uh, at, a, at, a, at a generation point. And I think the other piece where, where it works together is, uh, if you look at it, hydrogen uh, likes to work, or hydrogen uh, fuel cell likes to work at a steady state. So a lot of the hydrogen vehicles will still have a tiny little battery to act as a shock absorber, because that's what batteries do well. Uh, at, at the end point as well. So I think the two can, can, can really work hand in hand uh, to decarbonise things a lot quicker. Now, now, Joe, you've just set up a, a fund to, to you know, help develop and exploit hydrogen as a fuel. Where do you need to put the money at the moment? What does it need? The reality is very simple. Okay, We're talking about batteries and hydrogen at this point in time. My simple take on it is this. China have 73% market share in the world of batteries and therefore have a massive market lead on it. If we, Britain, want to have a footy in zero emissions, then really I would say you push for hydrogen um, because, frankly, you're not going to play that catch-up on batteries very easily. It's just kind of a difficult thing to play. So we're putting it into production but also driving the supply chain uh, of hydrogen into the UK uh, but, but 
basically trying to do what China did in a very small micro, micro way, which is to use government subsidy, drive up volume, to drive down cost. And once you've done that, and it costs the same, and it operates the same, then you get mass adoption. And Stephen, I mean, your company doesn't make batteries. You, you, you work out how to use them better. How, how much are you going to be working with hydrogen uh, to do that, do you think? Well, I think if you look at the, 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 the legacy of our business, we started as a grid-scale uh, battery business, right? putting big 40-foot containers connected to the grid and, and helping stabilize the grid. And we've only, in say, the last three years, um, stumbled almost into the, uh, the transport space to try and leverage what we learned in one market to, to solve the, the, the key challenges in, in electrification. So I would argue that we're still very much uh, focused on battery-powered uh, vehicles at the moment, but now that we, we're currently, I think, supporting about 500 or so vehicles that we've got under contract, you suddenly start to think, well, are we a battery business or are we a fleet business? And as a fleet business, you can take slightly different decisions than, uh, than as a pure battery business. So this gets a bit of a woolly answer. But I think where, where we are still seeing a lot of opportunity is, is, like I said, is making that battery system work better. Because, I mean, Joe touched on the influence of China having sort of stolen the lead on, on the rest of the world. But I think there's still opportunities to, to do exciting things in the battery space, even in the UK and elsewhere. I mean, if I think of a lot of the work that's being done on uh, using algorithms and heuristics to try and stretch the life of the batteries longer, uh, the whole right to repair... And, and looking at how batteries can be reused to create a local supply chain, like what we're trying to do with Second Life batteries coming out of buses that have degraded and can't do the 170 miles that, that Joe touched on. Well, how can those be reused to sit alongside that wind farm and help a hydrogen plant reach higher utilization rates of renewable energy and therefore become more economic? That's one way uh, that, that I could again see the ecosystem touching in, in various different points along the chain. And Joe, the... The government has um, got a big role to play in this. What, how does this fit in with their policies and, and what do you think needs to be done next? So clearly the government are into the decarbonisation business and, and, and so they should be. Um, part of the government's 10-point plan uh, is, uh, you know, two of the points are around hydrogen, one of them is around wind, and one of them actually, purely is around nuclear. Um and I think you need all of those to decarbonize the industry very quickly. They could do more, of course, but you need, you know, some OPEX support and some CAPEX support along the way, ultimately. If you take China as a wonderful example of what they did to embed the hydrogen economy in their, I'm sorry, the battery economy in their, in, in their economy, they use government subsidy, drive up the volume, drive down the cost, as soon as you've got the cost, cost the same as the incumbent, then you get mass adoption, then you export around the world. And actually, this, this is what this government's just trying to do. They're trying to drive up and have a piece of zero emission, whether that's batteries or hydrogen. And, and you know, Stephen and I agree on a number of things. But, you know, I would marginally go more towards hydrogen than batteries just because that's where I think we could we could get advantage. But he's absolutely right. You know, we have some wonderful technology on how do you, how do you make batteries better, how do you do the algorithms right. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think the government are pushing those sort of things. And Stephen, how do, you, how do you think they're doing and what should they be doing next? The government and policy, it's a bit like an oil tanker, if I'm still allowed to use those analogies, right? There's lots of different 
things they need to look at and, and it takes a while to to, to turn and as, as Sean already touched on there's, there's there's a lot of things that have happened over the last couple of months but particularly you can look at the, the bus space right we had the ultra low emission bus scheme electric town i think there might be hydrogen town at, at some point um, as well uh, zebra which is i think a bit more uh, egalitarian uh, rather than prescribing on the technology that needs to be used and i think that's actually where the biggest opportunity is it's like Government don't try to work out, don't pick winners, but actually create a situation where, where the market can come up with and try out uh, the best solutions that work in for, for each particular circumstance. And I think that's where there's a lot more um, more traction to be had. And I think the other bit that government seems to be realizing is that actually you can't look at these things in isolation. You can't look at your transport strategy, your hydrogen strategy, your nuclear strategy, all completely separate. You actually need to look at it. Well, if I look at the energy and the transport network as one system, how do I get all these different bits of government to work together to, to get the most bang for uh, for the tax buck, so to speak? Look, I think one of the most difficult things here is is the governments to think about, okay, how does this sort of tie up and how do you get enough power for it? Now, if you wanted to do, if you want to do, which Sadiq Khan wants to do, all the buses in London over the next 10 years, you need a new 500 megawatt, power station in essence i mean not but you need that sort of a, a equivalent of power coming on stream and so and that's just for buses but the bus team in transport don't speak to the car team which don't speak to the truck team and so they'll off go off and talk about oh we'll do we'll do the buses but actually it's about the whole holistic change you need enough power to make this work and power at point of use and i and, and i often don't think that they really talk because they're, they're kind of siloed and and that is where I predict that you're going to end up having problems is you'll have too many people coming on stream all at the same time with too many different battery solutions or electric solutions and you'll start having grid, grid issues. So Steve, the, the key is the grid, isn't it? The thing is, um, the analogy I always use for this sort of stuff is um, on average things can be fine but that can still mean you're, if, if on average you're 30 degrees but your head's 50 and your your feet are 10 you're probably still not happy right and that's a bit the issue with the grid is that you've got on average you're probably fine but the problem is it needs to be sized for the peaks as as joe was alluding to and if you don't have the right system planning or access to information in the right places to make those decisions you end up with a problem um well if everybody's charging their buses at night and charging their cars on the weekend during the day then we'll probably be fine but how do you create that incentive for people to have that level of coordination? And this is where I think a lot of the innovation opportunities sit for the next couple of years. I mean, if I look with some of our customers on the electric bus side, by working with the data we were getting off the battery and the charger and the vehicle, we were able to reduce their energy consumption by 25%. Now, the bus operator is very excited about that because it saves them money. And actually, me on the grid side, I get quite excited about that because that suddenly means with the same amount of infrastructure, I can do a couple of extra buses. So it's it's that sort of sort of mindset that needs to change a bit, rather than I'm going to build one on one. Oh, I need a 500 megawatt plant for for the buses, and another 500 megawatt plant for the cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We'll end up with a lot of white whales, and if we coordinate it better, then I think we can create something that's not only green but also a lot more efficient and cheaper. And there are also an awful lot of other industries that need um, decarbonising. I mean, just you know, home heating or um, smelting or manufacturing or anything. These these are big consumers, and they're going to have to move over as well, aren't they? 
Well, some of them have started actually to a degree, right? If you look at smelting and, and that sort of stuff, I mean, they, they, a lot of them have moved electric because it was just more, uh, more economical. And they're some of the largest power producers in the country. I think the big one to probably add is, yeah, rail and transport. They'll probably be right up there if, they, if not far above um on, on that side but yeah heating is is a big topic but again on the heating elements if you look at how some of the houses in the uk are some of the, the most poorly insulated in, in all of europe so if you try to then electrify that or hydrogen heat it you're going to need a lot of it well actually with some simple insulation matters you can just get consumption down so again it comes back to the point joe was making earlier it really needs systems thinking here to to address the challenge yeah, and I, look, I would agree with you. The most difficult thing is you've got to think about it all around and all of these different systems working together. And it shouldn't be an either or. It should be all of them together from insulation to hydrogen to, 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 to electricity and how they work. I think from a transport point of view, the one bit that you haven't really mentioned, which is going to be interesting how government play this, is taxation. Uh, at the moment, road taxes you know, I think it brings in 38 billion a year for the government through fuel taxing. And over the next 10 years, they're going to have to somehow, yeah, well, they're going to have to replace that or find another way of filling that hole up. One, one of the other reasons why I do like hydrogen is it, it is a fuel and in time potentially could be taxed in a similar sort of manner. I think electricity, you start running into political considerations where, okay, how do I tax this? You know, does that go on a person's house, on a car, road taxing? There's all sorts of different considerations that need to be done and then got right. And, 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 and I think that's a big hurdle. Yeah, and it is, it is a massive problem if you're trying to persuade people to move from one fuel to the other, to then say, but the taxation level is going to be exactly the same. Or, it's, or, or the, you know, if we tax electricity, how do you differentiate between what you use in the house and what you use in the car? Electricity is actually one of the most taxed uh, resources in, 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 in the world. So the third is tax, the third is grid tariffs, and then the actual third is the commodity cost, except for uh, weird periods like what we're having now. So percentage-wise, um, that's not necessarily an issue, but as, as, as Joe touched on, it's just a lot cheaper. So the amount of money it brings in for the government is going to be the challenge. And how do you differentiate between structural policies like energy price caps and, and the, the in, well, unintended side effects that that can have? And on the other side, um, yeah, making sure people can, can heat their homes at, um, in the winter versus yeah, that large smelter uh, on, on, on the other side of the, the street. And, and, and that is a, a challenge that will need to be gotten right. I, I guess not trying to be too much of, a, of an optimist, um, but again, technology of, of tracking who uses what where is going to help with that. I mean, if you look at smart meter rollout and et cetera, et cetera, you can actually track what the electricity is being used for and try and differentiate there. But um, it's not going to be an easy task. Sorry, Joe, finally, the, the big advantage of hydrogen, as you intimated, is that you've got to put it into your vehicle sometime, just like petrol, and that's how that's where they collect the petrol tax at the moment, isn't it? Well, you do have to then put it into a vehicle like petrol, and it does work in a similar sort of manner. Um, you know, one of the government plans for trucking is to put electric overhead lines down every motorway and turn every truck into a crane, which I think is kind of a silly solution because there are 90 filling stations in the UK that do 75% of all uh, trucking, um, and frankly, just put a hydrogen nozzle in it and jobs are done.
Joe Bamford and Stephen Mearsman confident about the future of new energy sources to solve the world's problems. But the keys are an electricity grid that really works, joined up government thinking, and two fuels and technologies working together. Thanks to them for taking part in this edition of BDO's Industry Angles. I'm Jonty Bloom. Thank you for listening.